This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The coronavirus pandemic has upended the country, posing challenges to the laws that govern our social, political, and economic lives. So the law professors at Columbia Law School have put together a free ebook with insights into some of the most pressing legal issues the pandemic has raised, ranging from privacy to bankruptcy. It's entitled Law in the Time of COVID-19. The book is the brainchild of Professor Katerina Pistor, and she joins me now. Start by telling us why you decided to write this book now in the middle of the pandemic. I am on social media, and I saw that um, a group of economists published an ebook on economics in the time of COVID-19 with thought pieces about what might happen to the economy, what to do about it. And I just felt lawyers should do something similar because our lives are so deeply coded in legal arrangements, and we are all so much affected by how law governs us. We don't realize this in normal times, but in the midst of the crisis, everybody is trying to find solutions to their predicaments. And I just felt an urgent need to help people understand what rights they have, what options they have, how the law is changing right now. And I wanted to make sure that we make this freely available to a broad audience. Um, That was the basic idea. So how did you put it together so fast? How did it all come together with all these professors writing on their specific topics? You know, I just looked this up again. Um, I sent an email on the 20th of March to my faculty, and on the 20th of April, we published it. And uh, I think this is unprecedented, but I made the case, and I said, we we need to get our act together. We have to do this. Um, And I just asked for faculty to respond. I had given them a list of issues that I thought were relevant, and then basically um, they responded and said, I'm happy to write on this, and I will be happy to write on that. And then I went back to some who had not responded and said, would you mind writing on this, because I think it's really pressing. Of course, one or two colleagues said we are so deeply involved in actually advising specifically and engaging our students on that. I just don't have the time to write. They send us resources, which we put into the appendix. So these resources are available as well. But that's basically how we did this. It was a huge commitment from our faculty. We also got two non-faculty members who were either referred or had sort of seen the announcement and volunteered, and we brought them in as well. It's amazing to get it together so quickly. So let's talk about some of the topics. And as you say, they just run the gamut. So one that interests me all the time is privacy. And, you know, we're hearing from federal and state authorities that they want to track people, track their cell phones in order to contain the spread of the virus. But you don't hear much outrage from the public or concern from the public about this because of the public health emergency. Yeah, so my colleague Clarissa Long wrote about this, and I think she points out that there is a real danger that we accept intrusions into our private lives because we want to deal with the public health pandemic. So there's a real, you know, urgent task now to balance what we are willing to give away and question ourselves whether we can take it back once the pandemic is over. So there are two important sources or kinds of data that she's talking about, uh, personally identifiable information, such as location data, which the phone companies are already keeping, but which the government could collect only with a warrant. But the phone companies have kept it, and the New York Times had a great investigation report in December of last year showing that when you have access to the data, you can actually trace people, and you can probably even identify many of them. And of course, 
if you want to say contact trace, this is critical information. If the government directly has access to it, it could trace our movements on a much larger scale. The second kind of data that are important are protected health information, basically our health data. And if we want to have a pass basically that we might now be immune against the COVID-19 virus. We would need to be able to prove that and this would require building a huge database with that kind of information as well. So people who had the passport could be double-checked against that. Again, we're giving away a lot of information. I don't think we have really good solutions yet. There are some technological solutions that might be able to keep some of the information more private or allow us to opt in. But we have to be really, I think, careful for how long one gives away these data and what happens once the databases have been created about our privacy. And that's basically, these are the big issues that Professor Long discusses in her contribution here. Our privacy seems to be vanishing even before the pandemic. So one questions what will happen after the pandemic when right now everyone is so willing to give up privacy in order to fight a public health crisis. So it's quite concerning. I agree. I mean, that's, that's exactly the point. It's because everybody wants to get the economy back moving and wants to move out, and we're willing to trade privacy for it without thinking what the long-term concerns might be. And, and we know that countries like Korea, Hong Kong, and it looked like Singapore, although they have a little bit of a backlash, Taiwan and China have been really successful in, in contact tracing people and have been, have been able to contain the virus in that fashion, so that is as attractive. But the downside is that we give the government enormous power over our lives. And I think once the guinea is out of the bottle, as usual, it's very hard to put it back in. So how to structure this and how to make sure that we still have control over our most private data, especially health data, I think is of great concern here. Something that's been in the news a lot lately are the problems that small businesses are having, obviously, with most of them shuttered right now. And the $350 billion rescue package didn't go to tens of thousands of small businesses because of different hitches and problems with the administration of it. You have a chapter called How to Help Small Businesses Survive. So what's the main takeaway from that? Yes, Professor Catherine Judge and uh, Todd Baker, who teaches at Columbia Law School as well, they wrote uh, about this and they pointed out that small businesses actually don't necessarily have direct contact to banks always, but they might um, borrow from other sources, such as fintech, like online platforms these days. If you channel the money through banks, and that was part of the glitches, I think, that we saw, that many of these businesses don't have an account necessarily with a bank, so then the banks can't easily give them money because they haven't vetted them yet for all these rules that we have in place for banks that they have to know their customers when they lend to them to protect um, the banks from engaging with, you know, sort of organized crime and money laundering and, and, and all these kind of issues and anti-terrorism protection. So they can't just lend to just anybody. Um, and so they would then lend to their own customers and those who weren't customers couldn't get the money. Um, so what the point that they're making, Todd Baker and Catherine Judge in their contribution, is to suggest that the government has to help these online uh, lenders to master the both sort of right now sort of just channeling the money to the businesses in need, but also they need to make sure that they protect them themselves from bankruptcy because they might be going under right now since they can't um, continue their business as usual. So this is an important intermediary now in our economy. So the question is how to deal with them so that the small businesses don't lose access to credit and 
don't forego the option to get access to government funding right now. Do you know if the government is doing anything with the next bailout to ensure that the money does reach small businesses? So I think they're making great attempts, and part of that is also to make sure that um, it doesn't have to go all through the bank, so that some of the more reputable, larger online lending platforms or payment uh, systems can be tapped as well for for, for channeling uh, these resources. So I think they realized that something didn't work last time around, and so we're hoping that it will work better for the next packages that is in the making. That brings us to the topic of bankruptcy. And in the in the uh, section on bankruptcy, there's an argument that the Treasury should make bankruptcy a precondition for receiving government-backed financing. How would that work? So I think the broader point that my colleague at Morrison and Andrea Savidra are making in their in their paper is that the bankruptcy mechanism works well for you know for large companies that are in distress, um, and it works also if we have a relatively small number of companies going through the process because the system is not equipped to deal with everybody. So they're not suggesting that everybody should go through bankruptcy. In fact, they are arguing that uh, smaller businesses, um, uh, for them, it's not a good option to go through bankruptcy. Um, And for them, you need basically liquidity provisioning right now um, and uh, through the CARE Act and and perhaps other facilities to make sure that they survive. Uh, Whereas for the larger firms that are really facing an insolvency event, bankruptcy might be an option. And for them, constraining access to additional um, government funding by saying, just go through bankruptcy and sort of clean clean your slate, basically use the mechanisms that we have and reemerge from that. And ideally with the employment force intact, um, that's of course a risk, but you can protect employ- employers and you can um, allow the company to reemerge from bankruptcy and function again and then maybe get ad- additional funding from the government. So there's a stigma to bankruptcy, despite the fact that Lots of businesses use Chapter 11 to come back. So there's still that stigma. How would the government decide who gets the funding and who has to go through bankruptcy? Well, I think what they're suggesting is to make a size cut, which is a relatively neutral cut, right? And they're not sort of giving us an exact number, but um, but Professor Morrison and, and her, his co-author, Andrea Savidra, basically arguing for the large companies, sort of push them into bankruptcy, and then for the smaller ones, make sure that you help them now. Um, so that amongst the small, larger groups, I think um, the question would be the same question that we're asking in other contexts as well. Is it true that you cannot get funding anywhere else? How to verify that, of course, it's a difficult process, right? So they would have to find some reliable indicators to make sure that they can differentiate amongst different firms. You have a book out called The Code of Capital, How the Law Creates Wealth and Inequality. And as far as the pandemic goes, my question has been throughout this, is the pandemic creating even more inequality so that when we're through this, on the other side, we're going to have a greater wealth gap. Yeah, I fear this is almost certainly going to be the case um, because the stress in such a situation, we just put the entire economy on hold and we've done this globally. The stress is 
most severe on the periphery of the system where people just have no resilience. They don't have a buffer of some savings that can get them through it. And those who don't have employment um, and lose it because they can't do their work, you know, some of us are, you know, have the luxury like I, I teach from home, I teach via Zoom, I haven't lost my salary, right? But many others basically do not have a job and their inflow of cash, of course, is gone, not simply gone, but they have many other commitments, right? They have to pay their rent, their mortgages, et cetera, et cetera. So they um, face um, severe financial hardship. So do many of the small businesses that have shuttered their doors even before the government was able to get the bills out of the door, the acts out of the door, as fast as this was. It wasn't fast enough for the um, crisis as it has unfolded. And once you have many, uh, many businesses shuttered and people um, uh, unemployed, it's very hard to get back from that um, and to recover the losses that you've had. So I'm, I think I'm, my, my greatest fear is that this is reinforcing it. And, and I think um, on the positive spin, you know, maybe we can think about how to, you know, code, <laughs> code rights and, and, and interests in a different way sort of to help people to get back on their feet, to make it easier for them to access loans or financing funding to rebuild their businesses once we're through this. An issue that has been in the news repeatedly is the prisoners who are being held in prisons that have been described as petri dishes for the virus. And it it seems as if every step that government takes is criticized because people say that they're afraid that the wrong people are getting out. Is there any rational solution to this? Well, I think there, you know, there are uh, different um, solutions that are discussed also in this book. So there's one contribution by my uh, colleague um, Bernard Harcourt with a group of students, and they basically looked at litigation strategies for prison mates um, who might be litigating on uh, the basis of. Uh, the Eighth Amendment basically saying that they're under cruel and unusual circumstances because they're uh, exposed to the virus under conditions where they might not have access to soap, where water is rationed, where they're very in very close proximity to others who might be infected already. So litigation strategy is, of course, a one-on-one strategy. That's not a national solution. More broad-based solutions, of course, that are being discussed, some states have started to implement them, is to release prisoners, especially prisoners who have only a few more months to go anyhow, who are not particularly dangerous, who might have been incarcerated on relatively minor charges. Um, so, so I think one, of course, has to differentiate to some extent. But those who don't pose a major threat to society right now, um, I think the concerns that are expressed in, in the article by Bernard Harcourt, but also in a related article by my colleague Susan Sturm, again, with a couple of students who helped her with this, is how to think about how deeply our lives are all um, linked, our fates are, are linked, including with our citizens who have been incarcerated for obvious wrongdoings. But nonetheless, if they, if, if they are mass infected, this will have spillover effects to us again as well. Finally, tell us how people can get a hold of this book. So the book is online on our library webpage and can be downloaded from there. There have been over 3,300 downloads since we posted it on, on the 20th. So this has been enormous demand for it. We have blasted it on, on social media, the link directly. I'm sure if you go to Columbia Law in the time of COVID-19, you will find the link, and then you can download, download it directly from that website. 
Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Katerina. That's Katerina Pistor, a professor at Columbia Law School. And the book we've been talking about is called Law in the Time of COVID-19. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.